0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our Master Cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at
2: wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with me, your host, Sara Tangora, and my amazing co host, my mother, Bobby Conforto, who is not here for the intro, but will definitely be here for the episode. Uh, and what an episode we have today, folks! Um, a really, really special conversation. Um, with Sarah Austin Janess and her father, Thorne Janess. Uh Sarah is the executive producer of The Moth, which if anyone is not familiar with The Moth, The Moth is a global arts organization dedicated to the art and craft of personal storytelling. Um, we were just really so excited um, to speak with Sarah and Thorne. Uh, they joined us to talk about the loss of Sarah's mother and Thorne's wife, Maureen, who passed away pretty suddenly of a very aggressive cancer in 2016. Um, And it was a conversation we were looking forward to because, of course, as with everyone, we really wanted to hear, you know, about their loved one, about Maureen and the experiences that um, they had in in the grieving process um, and their journey, their grief journey, but Um, also in discussing storytelling, which is what we all do uh, each week on the show. Um, all our guests are here to share their stories and it was really so wonderful and so interesting to have Sarah, who is, you know, the executive producer of The Moth and has been for a long time, um, to offer, you know, her particular expertise, um, in terms of the intersection of grief and storytelling. And also we talked a lot about food and Thorn and Sarah, um, as you'll hear in the episode, uh, develop some really beautiful rituals around food and grief after the passing of Maureen. So thank you so much to Thorn and Sarah. This is such a great episode. Can't wait for you guys to take a listen. Um, we also just want to mention, and we put this in the show notes and talked about it at the end of the show, but very exciting news that in April, on April 26th, um, the Moth book is coming out. Uh, it is called How to Tell a Story: The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling from the Moth. Uh, it's published by Crown Publishing and. Uh, pre-sales have begun. So go ahead, wherever you buy books, um, hopefully from an independent bookseller, but, um, and go ahead and order that moth book because the moth is just such a wonderful resource in terms of, I mean, personally, and I know Bobby feels the same way, just um, in so many facets of life, uh, storytelling and finding commonality with other people is just important in our in all of our journeys, and uh, especially when it comes to grief, just feeling connected, feeling like you're not, you know, other or weird or wrong for having these feelings and for that you're not alone in this experience. Um, So we really encourage you to listen to the Moth Radio Hour, to check out the book and pre-order it. And yeah, please enjoy our wonderful talk with Sarah and Thorne. And we hope you're all doing well. And, uh, if you like the show, let us know, send us an email at processing at heritage Radio If you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you have a listener letter, um, also we ask if you have time to rate review and subscribe to the show, it helps the show grow. It helps more people uh, become aware of it and connect. And that, um, that would be amazing if you have an extra moment so take care of yourselves and each other and without any further ado please enjoy our talk with sarah and thorne Okay, well, folks, we have an amazing episode today for so many reasons. Um, The topic is extremely interesting and complex, and our guests are a a father and daughter, which is a a first for us on the show, and so cool, and such an absolute pleasure to have both Sarah and Thorne Jeunesse with us today. Uh, Sarah is the executive producer of The Moth, uh, for anyone who has not heard of The Moth. It's amazing. Uh, And The Moth is a global arts organization dedicated to the art and craft of personal storytelling. Uh, Sarah also produces and is one of the hosts of The Moth Radio Hour and The Moth Podcast. She also co-created The Moth's Global Community Program, which develops and uh, elevates true personal stories from extraordinary people in the Global South in order to challenge dominant narratives. Sarah. Hi, welcome. Hi. How's it going? Hey, great. Hi. Thank
3: you so much for having me and, and having dad on today. We really appreciate it.
2: Amazing. And Thorne, Thorne, uh, you are uh, currently working as a semi-retired HR consultant, and you've de- devoted pretty much your whole career to human resources uh, and training and talent management and uh, are a longtime Long Islander. You, both of you folks are from Long Island, correct? Right. Mm-hmm.
4: Moved here in Amazing. 56.
2: Amazing. So we share that. 56. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Well, we are fellow Islanders, so we, at we share that. And I think there's a lot more kind of commonalities we can talk about. But, um, you know, both of you have this a common story to share. And I think we're going to talk a lot about storytelling today. But, Um, So in 2016, Sarah, you, you lost your mom to cancer and Thorne, you lost your wife. And so, you know, the loss of a parent is such a significant and horrible and difficult and complicated experience, Sarah. I lost my father to cancer as well in 2018. So, you know, on some level I can relate to the kind of, you know, the, the complexities of losing a parent to cancer, particularly because it's just, you know, it's a, it's an arduous and really difficult and really sad process. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience? How did you guys find out about your mother's cancer? Just maybe if you could bring us through that a little bit.
3: Sure. So, uh so it was 2016. It was right around Halloween and I was in New Orleans visiting my friend April and Dad called me very early one morning and he, you know, I dad and I see each other a lot and we text a lot, but phone calls are rare. Um, and it's, you know, dad usually calls with, with serious news. Uh, so I already had a pit in my stomach when I saw his phone, when I saw his name on the phone at like 8am. Uh, and he, when I picked up the phone, he could barely speak. He was, his voice was shaking and he said, um, it's your mother. And then he said, they found a mass. And, um, so I packed up my things and, um, he put mom on the phone and she was a little groggy and it was hard to tell how serious it was. It was just like, you know, piecemeal kind of. So I, uh, basically got into a car and went to the airport and got on the first flight back, um, and went straight to the airport Sorry, went and I went straight to the hospital um, where I then realized that she had had pain for a long time and finally was uh, finally went to get it checked out and then was helicoptered to a different hospital and things all happened very quickly from there. Um, She was uh, pretty quickly diagnosed with uterine cancer and then we realized that it had metastasized. Um, and it was pronounced stage four and, you know, it's a long story, but to make it short between the time she was diagnosed, which was again, right before Halloween to, um, the time that she died, which was December 26th. It was basically a two month process that was all up and down, um, all us hoping beyond hope that she was going to, miraculously beat this. Um, us, you know, I went through all sorts of prayer and, uh, abstaining from everything you could think of and trying to make deals (laughs) with God and, you know, you know how things go. And so, you know, if you do this, God, I'll do this. And, you know, dad and I, at one point made a list of everyone who we loved who had died. And, um, everyone who we had been friends with who had died. And we decided to, I decided to call out to them by name every night. And I think we had something like, oh my gosh, it was kind of fun to
2: remember all these people
3: on the other side. Beautiful. That's so
2: beautiful. Yeah.
3: And I think we had like 55 people, something like a a large number, a big crew. (laughs) And it was so nice to remember how sweet all these folks were and how, and you know, their own stories and, Anyway, so it was up and down and up and down and up and down. And we actually thought we were making progress and mom was in good spirits and she kept coming back from all of these incredible procedures and she was in good spirits. And then I think it was two days before Christmas, um, she had a scan and we realized that uh, that the cancer had spread to her lungs and that it was that there was no hope. And that was the, those are the words that they used, you know, we have to prepare wow. for her transition. Uh, what a lot and, to take uh, in in a short amount of time. It was, and you know, I have to, I, I, I work with the moth and love the moth. I've been there for almost 17 years and I took a leave of absence at the time and they were just incredible with me. Uh, you know, I, I just could never um, thank my colleagues enough. Um, and I was with dad every single day of those two months in the hospital every, every single day. And most of the time with Cameron, my brother, and most of the time also with grandma Harriet, my mom's mom and my mom's sister, Sharon, you know, we all, we all took turns. Um, but dad and I just, we just stayed there with her, um, until, until she died.
5: Sounds like you were conjuring up so much spirit by calling in all the people that had passed in your life. That really is a wonderful, incredible image
2: of just calling in everybody to help support in this process. And, um, it's beautiful. And when you were saying that, I was actually thinking it, it prompted me to think about how, uh, there's all these kind of unexpected gifts in, uh, in grief and in losing someone. And it's hard to think of it at the time. And maybe it's never easy to think of it or to realize it like that. But when you were kind of talking about, you know, calling back these folks in your life that you had known in their spirits, having this kind of spiritual experience, it really is like, you know, if, if the, if your mother's passing hadn't occurred that that moment of touching base in that way would have would have also never occurred and you know not to say one is worth the other of course but like there are these moments that we have in touching base with things we would never normally be able to and i think that's an interesting thing about losing gifts and grief
3: it's true and i i think you know i guess it depends a little bit on your and your spirituality and your religious beliefs but to realize that there were so many people. I said, dad, you know, who have, who did we love? Who loved us? Who loved mom? Who's passed. And dad came up with a whole list and I had a whole list of people I knew, but dad, you know, had many decades more. And, and, and so, and it was, it's actually incredibly comforting to think of all the people who Mm -hmm. were just the best, just a plus folks who have died. And, and, you know, and to think that there's this, I don't want to call it like a net, but there's just this like cloud of love that, you know, you can't see. And I think that that was really special. And now, you know, now that mom mom has been uh, dead for almost five years now um, and my grandmother Harriet has passed away and, you know, all four of my grandparents are dead. And so now, I mean, the, the, the number of folks on the other side is like, <laughs> massive. And so I keep yeah. joking with my family, like we have to repopulate. You know, have right? To, like We have to, yeah. like, we gotta, you know, we, we need some more on our team over here because we're getting pretty <laughs> heavy on the other side.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thorne, what were some of the uh, intricacies of the loss for you, of your wife? What were some of the things that maybe you remember about this time that felt significant um, or interesting or, you know, yeah, I just want to kind of gauge your perspective a little bit about what this time. Yeah, was like.
4: I mean, it was such a shock to realize how severely um, sick she was. Uh, to be told to take her to the emergency room, and then the day later, uh, realize that she had to be flown by helicopter to the Southside Hospital in Bay Shore. It was uh, shocking. It was it was too much to comprehend, and and yet still want to care for her and offer her um, the sensitivities of, uh, if it's a shock for me, imagine how much of a shock it was for Maureen. So she chose not to deal with it for her own reasons, uh, but she admitted to me later that she never realized that it was as severe as it turned out to be. So uh, while I heard overheard her talk to her girlfriend and say, I'm going to pack my suitcase and take it to the hospital with me, uh, I never thought that she would never come home. Uh, it, it was just um, un- unbelievable. But to, to go back to the losses in the family, I think most of the losses that we've experienced and the friends of the family were people who have lived a rather full life and have died over a long period of time the shock of this happening in two months time was uh hard to wrap your arms around it was uh, we were looking for anything to give us hope and um comfort and uh we couldn't find it uh that's why i think sarah and i just uh d- developed a very very close relationship by, you know, being uh, the best that we could offer Maureen. Yeah.
5: You're yeah. really describing the definition of trauma because it means more than we can handle. And, you you know, for everything to happen so quickly and unexpectedly, and, you know, it wasn't anything that you had ever conceived of, um, and then it all to come down on you in that short amount of time was traumatic. So it's this different, the grief and the trauma we like to look at is differently in a way. And... um yeah grief is such a natural process and trauma is something that's um, you know just a profound shock.
2: Yeah. It's it's also an interesting kind of thing and I don't know how you guys feel about this but I think uh, a lot of times you know when people have terminal illness you have maybe more time. You know, you find out and then there's something in that of getting to say goodbye and and kind of come to terms with it over a maybe a more extended period of time then there's often losses that happen suddenly by accident or sudden tragedy. And those are like, you know, so quickly that you're forced to you are thrust right in to kind of deal with it. So it's a very interesting and ext- I would assume a very complicated kind of situation when someone dies quickly of a terminal illness and you're kind of left, it seems to me, in a kind of a limbo between, you know, the immediate kind of being able to deal with it and also having the kind of prolonged, like semi-prolonged state. Did it feel complicated for you, uh, Sarah, in that way? Like, did it feel? uh
3: Yeah, well, I mean, at first, at first, her surgeon kept talking, her oncologist at Southside kept talking about the bagel ladies, which we came to just (laughs) hate. Uh, Dad, I'm speaking, I don't know how you felt about it, but it was these bagel ladies. I mean, I didn't hate the, I love the bagel ladies, but the bagel ladies were the ladies who made it through stage four somehow, (laughs) miraculously.
0: They're right, still alive. Right.
3: They're oof. still kicking. They're still, you know, they're still miraculously and God love them, and you know, enjoying their their lives. Um, and they get together and they all have bagels oof, together. Oof. This is why he calls <laughs> them the bagels. I forgot
4: that, Sarah.
3: <laughs> and so he kept telling mom, "Oh, don't worry, you're going to be a bagel lady." And he was telling us, like, "Yeah, you know," because my mother was feisty feisty is not even the right word she was a pillar she was was so strong you know she was just uh, people revered her and were scared of her you know i mean Mm. she was she was like a titan she was a lioness you Mm. know she was she was um just had a very big personality and was so loving and generous That when this oncologist was talking, was referring to her as the bagel lady, you know, in my heart, I thought, well, there's actually a chance that she will be because (laughs) she is such a strong person and she was quite religious and she had, you know, she, she, it felt like she was from another world to begin with. So it it felt like, okay, uh, maybe this will work out that she'll have another five years, you know, that she'll have another, who knows how long.
4: And and there were two or three times where she had to go through procedures, and the doctors were saying they didn't think that she would be able to survive these procedures, and she kept... Uh, generating hope by surviving and and living another day. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was in ICU for four different times. We got to know the ICU nurses and doctors uh, so well, we gave them Christmas cards, and they hung up Christmas cards of the family. It was was bizarre. I mean, we kept uh, holding out hope for anything that could allow her to live another day, and she kept surprising all of us. So... Um, uh, yeah. it was, uh, to, to, to imagine that it all lasted, uh, 30, de- 60 days yeah. or so is, yeah. is amazing. Uh, we, we went through hell many times.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell and hope. And I, it just, so we, so to answer your question, we didn't quite, we, we never had a, we, we didn't have any idea how long she would live. We hoped for, we hoped for the best. We hoped she, you know, would have still been here with us now, but, um, um, but yeah, the, it, in in finality, that the scans came back from a different floor, and it was basically all over. And we, I remember, we got uh, El, uh, Elliot on the phone, and they were facetiming. It was like I think that was probably the most traumatic part. Yeah, you know, n- knowing that like it was a matter of hours. You know, and she she stayed alive. You know, we laughed because. We laugh and we thank her because I I do think that people can choose when, you know, if you're in a prolonged state like that, you... you who knows? But I I think you may be able to <laughs> choose when you die, whether you're dying, you know, alone when people, you know, you hear people left mm-hmm. to go to the bathroom and that's mm-hmm. when mom died or people, right. or, or she waited until everyone was here with her and then she died, you know? And so do you want to do it privately or publicly? And who knows whether you really have control over that. I like to think that you do, but, um, yeah, but mom, um, she wouldn't die on Christmas. <laughs> you know, she was in such... <laughs> dire straits and in <laughs> such pain, but I think she just like, you know, refused to do it because it, you know, Christmas would have just been horrendous for us for the rest of our lives, you know? And so she just yeah. toughed it through and, and died around 11 o'clock the next day. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a wow.
5: time that you talked with her about her dying? Was there ever a time <laughs> that she looked to you guys and said, you know, I know this is happening
4: Oddly enough, I don't think we ever did. Uh, it was staring us in the face so uh, distinctly that uh, it was something that I couldn't openly talk about. Um, uh, we we know that she passed on her regards to uh, some uh, um, cleaning ladies that we've had in the house. They asked if they could come visit Maureen, and, Uh, their sisters, and they saw Maureen, and Maureen said, you take care of Thorne. You -hmm. know, he's going to need you. So that was her way of saying it,
5: yeah.
4: Yeah, so uh, she she still was resilient uh, up to the last uh, moment. Um, When we realized that she had to start the morphine uh, drip, uh, Sarah and I went home that night, before they started it. And we said, we have a short period of time in which we c- have to either ask Maureen questions or make statements or make decisions because we're not going to have a chance to do it once the morphine begins. And so we wrote out a couple questions, questions and, and that was probably the most serious mm-hmm. moment for us that it was inevitable. There was nothing we could do to stop it.
5: You know, this happens um, in so many families. It's not easy to talk about death and dying. It's not easy to talk at all. And so, yeah. I just you know for I wonder if that was hard for either one of you to not talk about
3: it it's hard to talk about it and it's hard to not talk about it right so I don't think that mom real i don't i who knows what she realized, but i we didn't quite know that she was definitely dying mm. until two days before she died. Mm-hmm. It was always the hope, 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 mm-hmm. and then the when, when it was finally pronounced, like there is no possible way, 0% chance that she will live and we have to start the morphine drip and we're, we're going to give her maybe a, a day to three days. Um, that's when, as dad said, we talked to her about where she would be buried. Uh, you know, we said, we, we would like to bury you in the Jeunesse family plot in Rye. And she smiled and Ooh. nodded and said, okay, but mm-hmm. she was so like graceful, mm.
4: yeah,
3: like steadfast and not, not stubborn, but just kind of like great graceful about it. Like, it's almost like she had just accepted it. Like yeah. there, there, she wasn't teary. She, she was just like almost blissed out in this way. I mean, she wasn't smiling and happy about it. No, clearly course, she, yeah. you know, but she, there was nothing we could do. Mm-hmm. And, and then dad said you know we want to start a scholarship in your name and then mm. we asked would you would you like it to be for the orchestral students or also the band students and mom thought for a minute and she Oop. said just orchestral oh. and we <laughs> laughed about that because oh. you know that was so so her um, and uh and then and then we knew that that one night was like the last night that people could say goodbye to her or pass along their respect so my best friend aaron came and and said, you know, I, what do you even say in that moment? So I think she just said, you know, I love you, and I'm wishing you well, or you know, God, and um, and the grandkids and, had a chance to sit ooh. on her lap
4: on Christmas Day. Yeah, Aww. that was touching. Oh,
3: that's, yeah, that's- and Christmas Day there were some presents there, and but I think I think my, uh, earlier in this, like maybe halfway through the first month in. Mom and I were alone in one of the rooms that she was in and um, out of nowhere, she said, I'm sorry, Sarah, I don't know how or why this happened. Mm. And that was, and then I was just kind of silent. I was silent. You know, because she had never apologized for anything ever.
4: (laughs) Totally out of character. You know, just to be honest with you, so I
3: knew something was terribly wrong. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but there was just nothing to, at that point, there was just nothing to say. I don't even think, I think I just held her hand. I don't even think I said anything because it was just, uh, it was just so much.
4: I mean, the, the odd thing was that she was in so many different rooms in the hospital uh, during that 60-day period of time. She must have been in six different rooms. They kept <laughs> moving her around. She got to meet most of the nurses. Uh, the the oncologist and his uh, team of doctors came in several times each day. Uh, he He turned out to be a Dartmouth graduate as well as me, and that was part of the reason why Maureen chose him. He was... He came in on the very first day and he had to make a pitch to Maureen as to why she wanted to use him as her oncologist rather than going to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so she looked at him and she said one thing. She said wahoo wah, which is an old uh, motto of Dartmouth alumni. Uh, representing the relationship with the American Indians, which is the New, new he, Hampshire connection, right?
5: That's the New Hampshire yes. connection because, yes,
4: um, yes, as you yes. said, you've
5: had how many generations of your family have
4: uh, lived? In I'm new the tenth generation. Sarah and Cameron are the eleventh, wow. and our grandkids are the twelfth generation. From 1624 or something like that. Wow! I mean, it's it goes way way back. Yeah.
5: And I want to comment when I you mean, were talking about your mom, Sarah, and the and she said, "I'm sorry." Um, you know, we were talking about stories before the show started. And I guess stories can be in a few words, right? A few words can tell a whole story. It's yeah. really it's so beautiful. So so what happened after that? You mentioned that it was the day after Christmas and that you were going to New Hampshire. Is that where you had the funeral service in New Hampshire?
4: Uh, no, we had it down here in, in Huntington at uh, St. Patrick's uh, January 6th, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we needed to take some time yes. and and gr- and grieve. Um, uh, so wow. we had a three-step process. We had the funeral service at St. Pat's on the 6th. We had a party at Crewe uh following it uh, and it snowed which was mm. fitting mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, was so everybody pretty. had to get home uh, in the fall. snow and and uh go on with their lives and then we had a uh f- uh what did we have sarah we had the burial in june up uh, yeah. in the rye so mm-hmm. it was a very extended, extended grieving period but we had to grieve two or three different times mm-hmm. And tell us more about the scholarship because that's so
5: incredible that those were the last few things that you talked about. Tell us more about that.
4: Um, I I don't think we had ever talked about it, but it was one of the things that I think Sarah and I agreed to when we were home that night and saying, how can we continue mom's memory? uh, To this day, I don't know that half of the students that she had i mean she taught for 30 years Mm -hmm. and usually orchestras have as many as a hundred kids in the orchestra she also had a chamber ensemble which is much smaller but she rubbed elbows Mm -hmm. with so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids thousands of kids and to this day i'm not sure that as many of them are aware that she's no longer here and so one of the ways to continue her name in perpetuity is to continue to uh, honor her name. So I reached out to the uh, school system and said, "I would like to set up a scholarship. What do I need to do?" And they said, "You need to put together a proposal. We need to better understand who this person is." Uh, and I said, "She's been your sidekick for thirty years. What do you? I mean, you should be naming a school after her, or at least an auditorium. <laughs> right. You know." Uh, wow. And so I had to pitch that, uh, and then I had to determine what's the reasonable amount. Uh, this was an LLC, so it it had to be uh, a legal entity. It had to be a you know 501 C3 uh, organization. There was an awful lot that had to be done to just set it up. Um, the The funny thing about it was that the first time we had to choose a, a, a deserving, senior to to win the award it turns out that the winning uh senior happened to be the stu- the, the the daughter of one of maureen's former violin students going way oh, way how back how special
5: is that generation and, That's and, beautiful. and and
4: so the joke was come on maureen you know stop playing around <laughs> stop stop uh, managing your your life
5: i take um, it that she played around she played she had a sense of humor i take it Maureen. She did, yes. Oh, she
4: did. She she loved she, did. she loved pulling surprises and and uh, making people laugh and laughing uh, at her with her at the same time. So uh, we've done it five times. Um, I've now Sarah and I have uh, helped declutter several rooms in the house, and one of them was Maureen's office. It's where she had all her things. And I found so many mementos Mm -hmm. that uh, deserve to be in the school Mm -hmm. rather than at home that I reached out to the current orchestra director and said, can I make a donation? Can I give you the scores of all of her uh, music uh, library? Can I give you practice books for all the different musical groups that she had to coach? Um, And so he was nice enough to say, I'll take anything you want to give. So. That'll continue Maureen's uh, memory as well. Beautiful.
3: You know, my brother Cameron and I have we grew up going to rehearsals with mom, so we grew up in in the Walt Whitman rehearsal rooms, hearing classical music. Uh, you know, and and I think part of my love of or feeling so comfortable in the theater and and on stage uh, on the you know in the the theatrical art side, you know, comes from my mother bringing me through, um, you know, stage with with her chamber ensemble and her various orchestras. And she used to have everybody to our backyard for barbecues when we were younger. Mm-hmm. And so to honor her with a scholarship mm-hmm. for those students mm-hmm. who love music, it just made so much sense. I think it came to dad and to me in a in a fit of what do we do? And it, it was almost divine. Like it, it was just, it was right there in front of us. And we came in the next morning before, you know, while mom was still conscious and it was so nice. Um, but it is, it is. It is. It feels. It feels like home to walk into the backyard and see current students, just like we did when we were. When my brother and I were it's young. Beautiful. So um, many people want to do that celebrate. and never
5: get the chance to do that. You know, they want to. It's a dream. You've done it for five years now, four years now. That's really yeah, incredible. Yeah. I understand. Maureen liked to cook too. That mom liked to cook.
4: Uh, she was a great cook. She was a risk yeah. taker. She would invite people over, and then. Uh, seriously contemplate, what can I do that'll kind of be the perfect uh, uh, dinner plan? And more often than not, she would cook something for the very first time and take risks associated with it. (laughs) Uh, And more times than not, it would be a splendid uh, success. Um, And that's part of the challenge that I now find in the kitchen uh, that uh, uh, nobody's cooking for me. Mm-hmm. I got to cook for myself and I've limited myself to only one meal out of the kitchen a week, whether that's a fast food, which I hardly ever do, or a dinner like I had last night with Alan and a couple friends. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, it, it puts me back in her world. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not the risk taker. I, I don't think. And yet Sarah would probably argue with that. I do. Sarah and I have a game uh, and and it's um, Maureen has three or four shelves of book books in the kitchen. Hundreds, I would say. I would say more than half of which probably have never been opened and <laughs> never, been, never been used. I don't see markings. I don't see uh, pages earmarked. Uh, I, I don't see any scribbling. Sometimes she wrote whether or not the uh, recipe was good or not, and when it was cooked. So I've tried continuing in that uh, tradition. But uh, Sarah picks a cookbook off the shelf. I then choose a recipe in it, and Sarah, knowing where the cookbook is coming from, has to choose a video that we're going to watch while the dinner is being served. Uh, and I love and that. we've done it That's four amazing. different times. It's, a, it's amazing. I mean, it challenges... <laughs> That's
3: incredible.
4: Yeah, so give us an example. Me.
3: Give us an example. I'm curious. Go ahead, Okay, Sarah. well, the first one, yeah. Okay, well, I think, you know, in the so mom left behind so many things. And like dad said, some of the cookbooks have never been used, but some of the cookbooks have been used so much that there are all sorts of markings in them. And then she had <laughs> other recipes that she wrote on index cards. And so mom has just tons and tons and tons of recipes around. So... We said, what are we going to do with all these books? And I picked for this first cookbook to try this, you know, special night, um, a cookbook from the South. It was like the Savannah cookbook. And um, Dad picked a recipe, and then we watched The Prince of Tides. <laughs> oh, my
2: goodness. Barbra
4: Streisand. I know. Yeah, I know. And Nick Nolte, The Low yep. Country. I recently a watched that myself. spinach
3: salad. And Dad, I forget what you... What was it? Spinach salad and, like, scallops or something uh, no, like this? No, I think it
4: was uh, shrimp, shrimp scampi.
3: Oh, yes. Shrimp scampi. And, and a
4: spinach salad. And yeah. a spinach
3: salad. Oh, fun. And then we thought this was terrific. And it, it felt like such a way to honor some of the mom's love of cooking some of the cookbooks that were just sitting there um and, and then we wanted to do it again so the next one was a cookbook from new england it was and the sopranos watched-
4: it was the sopranos cookbook
3: Oh, the Sopranos <laughs> cookbook, um, and and the, so the the next was the Sopranos cookbook, and we uh, watched two episodes of the Sopranos, and it had an Italian dish. Another one was um, the New England cookbook, uh, and we watched The Departed, <laughs> and then the last one was a beautiful French cookbook, and we watched Charade with Audrey Hepburn. <gasps>
2: Oh, my gosh! You just watched I that, just right, watched Papi?
3: that movie too loved it yeah. so
5: much yeah. That's no, so wonderful.
2: I think you've started great. a new a new game for families. I mean this is so inspiring, <laughs> really
1: yeah.
2: so you know it's it's interesting, Sarah, because obviously so much of your life's work has been dedicated to storytelling, and it's something that I think we want to kind of touch on too at, at before we uh, end the episode. But you know, cooking. Uh, is also kind of a form of storytelling, especially when it comes to passed down recipes. Um, it's a way of continuing a bond with people who we lost. And in that, you kind of, I think, are conjuring these memories of folks. What was what was it like when they made this? What was it like when they were in the kitchen? And kind of reliving these you know, very personal stories and personal experiences that we have with them. And I, I personally think that there's something in recreating a dish or using somebody's cookbook or, you know, Thorn, how you were talking about, you know, cooking for yourself is kind of your way and continuing a bond with Maureen. Um, I, I just think it's interesting, Sarah, as someone whose life's work is based in storytelling and based around storytelling. How do you feel about cooking as a form of storytelling?
3: Well, I think uh, I think to 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 tell a story about any experience you need an angle in. So I like to say that, that moth stories are like short documentaries. You know, you, you can't tell your whole story, your whole you can't tell your whole life story. You have to pick and choose which experiences you want to mine for meaning. And I think that cooking food or sharing a meal is such an excellent way into relationship. Um, we've had a lot of stories at the moth that center around food, center around a recipe. Um, some, some stories that I can remember include a specific recipe or the memory of a loved one cooking a recipe as a beautiful detail that they use in order to build the character. So I think that, I think that food is a, is a fertile ground for remembering people and, um, coming up with the memories that you could build a story around.
2: Yeah. You know, before the show, we were chatting with you about kind of, and I know Bobby, uh, we had discussed earlier in discussing this episode, the importance of storytelling when it comes to remembering a loved one who passed away. Um, and also that sometimes that is quite painful for people that the actual re- retelling of the story can, you know, Sarah, you had mentioned before the show, sometimes folks, you know, are unable to even get through their own story. It's difficult. It's challenging at different stages of your, of the grieving process, at different stages of processing, and just depending on who you are as a person and how close you are willing to get to, you know, the grief um, in a public way. Uh, I think that personally, and sometimes cooking, and it could be cooking, it could be woodworking, it could be a walk in the woods, anything that kind of is... Uh, you know, an alternate way of storytelling can sometimes be a way into touching upon that, even if it's too hard to repeat it verbally, you know, even if you're not ready to talk about it yet, there's something in like accessing your story through, you know, reliving some of these things that were uh, really important that that you shared with the person or that that really kind of represented who they were. And in fact, you know, Part of the reason that we even started this podcast and kind of talked about it tied to food, you know, the intersection of food and grief is because sometimes it is so deeply painful to uh, access those memories or it's a societal taboo that maybe we're not supposed to talk about grief or death or it seems, you know, too dark or too too uh, upsetting to talk about. And so I don't know. I'm always kind of interested by the ways in which people can tap into their grief and tell that story perhaps if it's, even if it's not verbal.
3: Well, I, I, I mean, if you I have a few thoughts, <laughs> yeah. if you're grieving and you feel you can't talk about the person, how nice to create a recipe that they loved, how nice to go to that restaurant that they loved and order the dish that they loved. And, you know, in doing that, it, it, it's almost a, it's it's honoring the person it's it's a it's um an experience of being close to them. Um, in addition to that, when you're when you're telling stories about loved ones who have passed away, I think there are there are a few different ways that you can honor the memory of a loved one. One is to tell stories about them in the everyday. So dad and I tell stories about mom to each other. We tell stories about mom to Cameron's children. They talk about her regularly. Um, Oh, that's something grandma Maureen would have liked or tell us more about grandma Maureen or, you know, we, we bring up all sorts of Things that we remember about Halloween nights and what she used to dress up as mm-hmm. and um, you know moments where Cameron and I were off with toilet paper and she had to go back to the police department <laughs> and ask for it back because we were out of <laughs> you know, whatever it is that comes up you know and we laugh and we laugh and we laugh yeah. about it and it's a way to really honor her um, in in a very everyday kind of more normal way it, In my work with the moth, I've seen over and over people want to tell stories of loved ones who have passed away. In some cases, they want to take the stage and tell the story right after the passing. And you run, you run a risk when you are doing that because it is possible that your grief is not processed. It's probable that your grief is not processed. And so the risk that you're running Mm -hmm. is that when you're up on stage, it becomes more of a a session, like a therapy session where you're actively working through it. And to be honest, that's not exactly what the audience came to see. Mm -hmm. You know, you need some reflection and time that has passed since the events that you're talking about to turn the events into the art of story. So, so when we're working with people on a Moth main stage story, which is the directed series, the stories that are 10 to 12 minutes long that you hear the bulk of on the Moth radio hour and the podcast, those stories have been have been directed by somebody in tandem with the storyteller and the what, what the director is really looking for is can we contextualize this relationship that you had with the person can we find an arc for you the storyteller so that it is about your relationship with that person and is there a place where we can end the story that really resolves the story that really makes the story your story make sense because if the grief is not processed um, to some degree we've seen storytellers stand on stage and not be able to get to their ending because they're so happy that they've conjured this loved one in front of hundreds of people. And there's a beauty in having those hundreds of people meet your mother or meet your your best friend or meet your, um, your spouse. But then in the story, we see you realize, oh God, I have to acknowledge that this person has died. And I have to acknowledge it in front of these hundreds of folks. And it's, it's, it can be uncomfortable to, and, 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 oh gosh, as a director, you just want to hug the person, run up on stage and hug them. Um, But we say that, you know, it could be one year that you need Mm -hmm. for some Mm -hmm. distance. It could be five years. And some people are just not ready in a public forum to tell a story of someone they deeply loved who's passed because it's just too painful. In other cases, six months passes, and they can find an entry point and an exit point so that they can tell a a beautiful story that really is cohesive and makes sense and honors the person, Um, but that feels healing instead of like they're still processing. Well, it's
5: interesting. I was thinking as you were talking, and this relates to you, Thorne, that um, group group sessions for uh, bereavement are very helpful because you really do get to tell your story in many different ways. Um, I used to work at hospice and I ran uh, bereavement support groups there. And in the beginning, we would always have people go around first and tell their story. And then the second week, we would have them bring things that were represented their loved ones. So it was another way of telling their story. And we would have, it was really about storytelling. So I wonder, Thorne, I know you um, had participated in a support group. Did you find that that was a good way of telling your story in, in public, in front of other people who could, you know, intimately share the story of Maureen.
4: It was wonderful. Uh, I had also experienced one at Huntington Hospital. Um, but what was different about the two is that uh, in the Huntington Hospital, these were people who had just suffered a loss. There was no connection between one person who was there and another. I was there because my spouse died. Another was there because her son died of a drug overdose. Another one, her husband died in a terrible car accident. So. Um, the, the circumstances didn't help bring us closer together. To uh, And the second one I went to, uh, nine people, all of whom lost their spouses to a different form of cancer on Long Island. And so it was jarring to hear other people's stories, the, the pain, the suffering, the shock that they went through. It, it normalized it for me. I went in thinking, how, how could anybody deal with Uh, losing a spouse in two months time it was record-setting in some respects Uh, but in many ways i didn't think maureen or we suffered nearly as much as people who fought breast cancer four different times before uh... the wife died on the fourth round uh... that's over three years so it puts it in perspective you can accept the finality of it a lot better but it also uh, caused the group to become best friends with each other. Mm-hmm. We've now, and Bobby keeps saying, I can't believe that going on four and a half years, you meet every month for dinner out. Uh, you just share uh, a love for each other and what they've had to go through to survive. You've, you've become uh, part
5: of each other's story now.
4: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a it's a new thing. family yes. of sorts. yeah.
2: The thing that strikes me, I think, so much about storytelling um, is that, you know, and again, Sarah, you had kind of touched on this a bit when we were just chatting before we recorded, is that, you know, I feel like as human beings, everyone's life has a very different uh, and very complex, uh, very personal struggle, right? We all have these things that we deal with no matter what they are, no matter who we are, no matter where we live what's happened to us. And I think that the thing that can really keep people in a dark place sometimes is feeling unseen. We all kind of want to feel seen. And then the value of feeling seen and the value of feeling heard and the value of feeling like, you know, uh, my story represents me and that if I can share my story and if someone understands my story, that like makes me feel, you know, seen and heard and how important that is. And additionally, uh, Thorne, to your point, you know, hearing other people's stories can make us feel less alone. You know, mm. I mean, and it doesn't take away the individual individuality and how complex each of our losses or each of our experiences are so unique to us. But to know that you're not alone with with pain and with grief, especially, is important. Um, and I just think that, you know, the profoundness of uh, giving people the opportunity to share their stories is, is really huge and is so kind of Uh, I don't know, just important and impactful in terms of like the grieving process in general. I think like being able to offer a way where people can, you know, let that into the world. And Sarah, in your line of work, like giving people this platform and opportunity to do so is so generous. And so it
5: It helps our human condition as a total.
3: Well, I thank you for saying that. I've been with the moth for almost 17 years and I love it. Uh, I just, I, it. The art of storytelling is such a um, it's it's a gift the storyteller gives to the audience. But then I like to say that the moth looks like a storytelling organization, and it is, but is it is really a place that invites people to practice the art of listening. And I think that's what you're what you're saying, that in this day and age, it is quite rare for people to be able to tell of themselves, of a, of a life, real life experience that change them and be uninterrupted for a handful of minutes. Um, and so, you know, in non-pandemic times, The Moth has 600 live events a year. Some of those are very small scale and open mic, and some of those are much in, in much larger theaters. But in every case, a single person who you may sit next to on a bus or in an airplane or stand next to online in a grocery store um, is telling a crafted story of something that fundamentally changed them. Mm -hmm. Um, And grief and and loss is fortunately, unfortunately, just a part of life. And so it shows up in a lot of moth stories. And sometimes it's the kickoff. We say like, sometimes it's the inciting incident. Sometimes the loss is what starts your story you know you're you're beginning with, with the end of one story is the beginning of another Beautiful. so the 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 passing of a loved one could kick off a brand new chapter for you and does mm-hmm. um and and in some cases the the death comes at the end of someone's story and it's after a long battle or it's it's or it's a shock um but but death does does death is present in many moth stories as um I'm sure the listeners
2: know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because I think that when we're in times of grief, whether it be heartbreak, whether it be loss, whether it be any kind of, you know, just really upsetting situation, there is this feeling, at least I know I've had it, and I'm assuming most other people have, that no one can possibly understand what I'm going through. No one has ever felt this before. And I think that that is both true and untrue at the same Mm -hmm. time. You know what I mean? it's true because you are a unique human being and you know the kind of bizarre complexities of what makes up people and what makes up their specific feelings and everything is can't be matched right it's like a fingerprint but at the same time it's untrue because we all have the kind of this common bond in that like strife affects each one of us trauma grief pain like at all joy you know what i mean pleasure like all of these things kind of touch everyone in their lives in the same way and so i think the, the one of the most wonderful things about any platform uh, particularly the moth which is so incredible but uh support groups aa uh you know p- different podcasts documentaries filmmaking mm-hmm. really art recipes like it's about like kind of this human connectivity and when we can get those little tiny breakthroughs of light to be like i am not I am not the actual only person that has ever felt this pain or this joy. And that is comforting in some way, at, at least, least to, to And me as it we is.
5: always say on the show, the courage to reveal yourself. It takes great courage because it's it seems so much easier to just hold it in. You know, although I always think of this quote that Maya Angelou had. She said, there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of yourself.
3: Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible. I think the courage to share... The The courage to share your stories, plural, um, and, and the courage to listen to other stories makes life less scary. I mean, I don't think that nope. death is just, death is not spoke, death is not talked about as much as it should be, in my opinion. Um, it is still quite taboo. It is something that we will all experience. And if it were more part of the, if it were part of our everyday uh, I mean, not in a super dark way, but just, you know, acknowledged, named, it's, it's, it, it doesn't take on the weight that I think mm-hmm. that uh, it's not, it's not as scary as, um, or as untouchable, mm-hmm. you know, as, as some people, as, as some people believe it to be absolutely
2: I have a question for both of you Sarah and Thorne since we are, do love to talk about food on this show and you've mentioned that Maureen was such a wonderful cook and had so many cookbooks I'm wondering if either of you you know individually or, or together if maybe there's something that was just kind of so important in, in the family uh, in her cooking but is there a dish or a kind of food experience or a holiday that really reminds you of Maureen and her cooking and
4: Well, her favorite, uh, holiday was Thanksgiving. We had, we had Thanksgiving at our house, uh, so often that I put together a photo book for the family members, (laughs) uh, and it spanned, what, Sarah, 20 years maybe?
1: Yeah. I mean, you
4: saw kids who were quite young in the beginning, and then at the end of the book, they were married, they had children, uh, Uh, You can chart relationships
3: by the photographs. (laughs) This is when they first met. This is when they got married. This is when they had their kids. So, you know,
4: she, uh, I think we went 18 years. I've been in the house 34 years. Uh, We went 18 years without uh, fixing up and upgrading the kitchen. So when we finally uh, remodeled the kitchen, Maureen all of a sudden became the expert uh, party planner because she had uh, double ovens. She had cooktops. Uh, she could do the things that she always dreamed of doing. And so, um, that just added to the joy of, uh, holding these, uh, parties. Um, the house is a great house for having, I mean, it's a very large dining room now that we've moved it to what used to be the, the living room. Um, and she had this huge table, uh, was a takeoff on, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, antique uh tables of old and she just loved putting on parties. Mm.
5: Mm.
3: It's it's nice to break out all of her accoutrements and cooking utensils and um plates and it's it feels very celebratory to to go into those cabinets and and unearth everything. Um when (sighs) I was younger China
4: and all the silver that gets Mm. hidden away Mm. immediately after (laughs) the party
3: when i was younger i i remember her making stuffed peppers a lot um yeah. she she would make stuffed peppers for us her one of her favorite dishes to order out was bolognese and so when when we are out many times we'll order that in honor of mom um uh she made all sorts of um she was excellent with her sauces she would make all sorts of delicious sauces and Yeah. I mean, everything that she created, oh, she would bake. She would bake for her chamber ensemble. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting in the car always with, with big baskets full of brownies and homemade cookies. And, um, so I knew that it was a night she'd go to her chamber ensemble because the whole house always smelled like (laughs) delicious sweets. Um, and, Yeah. So, I mean, anytime we're in the kitchen or we're, we're making something with love, I think we're really channeling her.
4: Yeah.
2: That's amazing. So, you know, uh, at the end of each episode, we kind of always like to ask everyone the same question and everyone's answers are always so different and so interesting. Um, But I'm going to ask it to both of you. And that is, uh, if you could have given yourself one piece of advice at the beginning of this grieving experience, kind of knowing what you know now, having processed your feelings and kind of, you know, gone through the grieving process. Do you have any advice that you would give to your younger self kind of just beginning on this journey? Um, Sarah, we we can start with you.
3: Um, I would (laughs) have hugged myself and said, take a deep breath and it'll all be okay. And just like mom told you before she died, she's always watching.
2: When you wrote that in your pre-interview, I was reading it and I—I really, really got me. I really became very emotional, and it's so sweet and such a wonderful thought to think about her watching and being there. It's really beautiful.
4: Well, that—that's th- what's so much fun of hearing the stories from Sarah and Cameron of conversations that they had with Maureen when I wasn't there. So <laughs> it's almost like it's—it's it's almost like opening up a whole new chapter in better understanding and appreciating the relationship between mom and children, uh, rather than just, uh, you know, spouses talking together. We, we had a very challenging life lives together, uh, two different, uh, distinctly different chapters, uh, with two wonderful children to show for it. But if, if there was anything that I would say to my, uh, older self, it would be, Stop feeling as if you could have done something differently to to lessen the pain and the suffering that she went through. Um, sorry. Oh no. Uh, and and uh, and learn from it. You know, um, it's it's quite a, a stimulating experience when it all gets broken down. So, mm. uh, in some ways, it's been very worthwhile. I hate to say it that way, but not to see her her go, but uh, it's opened up a whole new awareness to me and I think to the kids in terms of what is is life mean to us now.
3: Well, we were very close before, but now that she's passed, I think we're, you know, death brings people together. I mean, we were an incredibly tight knit family before she passed, but now we're pretty inseparable.
2: I just want to thank you guys. I mean, we have one more thing that we like to talk about at the end of the show, but I just want to take this opportunity to like, not just say thank you for joining us, but deeply because to, to come on this show and to go to tell these stories is I always really think of it as being so deeply generous. It's such a like generosity of spirit. It's a heavy lift emotionally, you know, because it's not just the hour that we spend together talking about these really kind of very vulnerable, very you know, hard to think about memories and times, but it's the, it's thinking about before the episode, it's the days that follow it's the listen, re-listening of it. So it's like really, you know, unearthing some big feelings, even if they are feelings you've processed, even if these are stories you've told, you know, even if your career is in storytelling to tell your own story publicly is a really heavy lift and, uh, it is so, we appreciate it so much, that generosity. And we know that our listeners appreciate it so much. And there are people at all different stages of the grieving process who tune in to listen to this for guidance, for feeling togetherness, for feeling kind of like there are comrades in this you know, situation with Sarah, as you mentioned, we talk about often in a death denying kind of culture and where death still is such a taboo it feels, you know, one of our goals with the show is to destigmatize grieving and death and everything that goes along with it. And so this is all to say that in the heavy lift that you've done emotionally for today, we thank you so much because it really does mean so much to other folks who feel like they're aliens in this process, especially at the beginning, you know, and you don't know if you're supposed to feel this way or if it's okay, or if anyone else does. And again, yes, other people do and they don't, you know, it's just, so thank you deeply from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time and for taking um you know the space to to share with us today something that is so you know really tender and dear to you and so personal
4: well thank you for asking us to help
2: i think i thank you too for for this beautiful podcast and for talking
3: about death and grief and normalizing it. And I, I also thank you for inviting us to conjure mom back for a little bit, Mm -hmm. Maureen. She, you know, it's, it's nice to talk about her and to, to, um, to honor her and to remember her. So we thank you so much. And
5: we really all learned about her and the listeners have learned about her too. You know, your warmth is so palpable and it really, um, it invites us to think it would be nice if we could continue this today. And if we could have a feast together what would we bring to the feast? So if we could sit at that wonderful table in your dining room, Thorne, the one that Maureen loves so much, and we could sit down and have a meal together, what would we all
4: bring? Uh, I would cook a turkey. Okay. (laughs) Just like I would do out on the Weber grill for uh, Thanksgiving. Ooh. Uh, Maureen would make uh, sweet potato and sausage casserole. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. She would make uh, spinach, uh, no, broccoli, uh casserole, and uh shortbread. Um, oh. what else, Sarah? She'd make beets for
3: me, which Ooh. I would appreciate greatly. <laughs>
2: Yum. <laughs> and
4: um, a nice salad. A
3: very nice salad. I would I would probably make stuffed peppers in honor of her. Um uh. she loved an eclectic an eclectic dinner, a hearty um uh a hearty dinner that was eclectic and filled with lots of comfort food.
5: Oh, good. You know, interestingly enough, um, my friends have a farm, and I went to there last week, and I brought a bunch of peppers. They gave me a big basket full of peppers, and Zara made me stuffed peppers this week. She came out from Brooklyn and made me stuffed peppers, so it's interesting you're talking about that. Really? So you bring stuffed peppers, and oh, I would bring, mushrooms, I would so bring mushroom nice. strudel. Because my mom was Hungarian and I she taught me how to make strudel when I wow. was a young child. Nice. It was the first thing she taught me how to make, but I would make mushroom strudel. I would get all kinds of interesting mushrooms and um a creamy filling and I'd make a, a nice flaky strudel. What would you make, Zaz?
2: Well, because we're talking about we talked about cookbooks and Maureen's love of cookbooks and your guys' amazing, by the way, amazing and beautiful and sweet tradition uh, uh, that you have to with the cookbooks. I, I love it so much. It's really, really amazing. Um, my dad's favorite cookbook, my dad was a chef and a baker, and he had lots of beautiful cookbooks. And some of them actually, funnily enough, are covered in cake <laughs> batter. So I know the recipes that he really loved have like 40-year-old cake batter, like just crunched on. And people have asked, you know, the, the question, you know, if you had to grab something from your house, if you could only take one thing, like it would be these cookbooks that are crusty the <laughs> cake batter. So one of his cookbooks that's the most crusty and covered in like in cake batter is Maida Heda's book about cakes. Um, she's a wonderful prolific cookbook writer and his best, his favorite recipe in there was her carrot cake. Mm. And so the carrot cake page is illegible. You cannot read it, mm. <laughs> but um, you can kind of get the recipe online now, but it's just covered in carrot cake. That's all to say I would make my dad slash made a hater's carrot cake. Oh, that's
3: incredible. Oh, I yeah. would, I, that's incredible. What a beautiful yeah. image.
2: Yeah, it's cool. Well, Bobby and and my dad used to own the love and oven and they had the specialty takeout food shop and they made all these beautiful things. And so those, that's some love and oven cake batter. It de- <laughs> definitely puts a timestamp on it. So that's like 70s cake batter right there. <laughs> so great. Well, you guys, this was really beautiful. And uh, Sarah, can you just tell our guests, uh, our listeners, how we can listen to The Moth Radio Hour and just a little bit about The Moth so we can all all be tuning in? Sure. Oh, I'm so excited, too. So The Moth has a
3: uh, a radio program and a Moth The Moth podcast. You can find The Moth podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, for more information on when The Moth Radio Hour is airing in on public radio in your neck of the woods, you can go to themoth.org. And I have some exciting news, and that is my colleagues and I have been writing a book, and the book is called How to Tell a Story The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling from the Moth. And um, it comes out in April. And so if you want to purchase it and, and read it, you can also find information on our website with a slash how to tell a story. Um, it's all about how to find a craft. And share your own personal stories out into the world, which is what we need now more than ever.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really amazing, and uh, I'm so glad that we just got to have your perspective on storytelling and the kind of importance of storytelling. We couldn't possibly have a better expert when it comes to storytelling. And <laughs> when you say it's more important now than ever, it's so it is so true because we are all like. You know, kind of more in like in our own worlds than ever. And there's so so many reasons to share our stories now. We cannot wait for that book. That is amazing. And we love them off. And really to both of you guys, as a as a team to come on and be able to talk about this together. It's really special. It was really, really special. Thank I you appreciate
3: again. you too. And Dad, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining
1: me today.
4: Well, thank you for thank inviting you. me. <laughs>
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? Otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a Master Cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese, with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker Program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing sharing learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing_podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.